The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, you have gifted us with the sacraments as outward and visible signs of the inward and spiritual graces that you intend for each and every one of us. We pray as we continue to contemplate and interact with those gifts that you would do exactly as you intend, increase our joy and our trust in your goodness and love all the days of our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so, so good morning, and I want to start out with a little housekeeping issue, which is <clears throat> next week we're going to meet the head of school, the interim head of school, Mary LaTulip. This is a great opportunity for you not to only meet who is sort of the head of our most um, visible and prominent community outreach, our school, um, but also her vision for the school and quite honestly ways you might be interested in supporting the school this year with your time and with your talents this is something that we're really trying to figure out here at st thomas which is um, we have wonderful parishioners who have so many things to offer our children and we want that to happen we really want that to happen so so um I'm not trying to get you signed up for more work, but it'll be interesting to hear about the school and how you can do some more work. <laughs> so you want to meet her. Mary's a really interesting lady, and hopefully she'll share a part of her life journey with you because it's, it's really fascinating, and, and um, we're looking forward to a great year here, really. Um, the other housekeeping thing is, I think two weeks ago I suggested to you that we should figure out what we're doing next in here, and none of you had any suggestions. So if, so if you would make pointed suggestions to me as to what sort of thing you'd like to do, I'd be grateful to do it. Otherwise, you might fall on the whimsy of the priest and, and end up with something you don't want that you boycott so, or girl caught. There needs to be that word, doesn't there? <laughs> So, so I don't want any girl cutting or boy cutting. Um, let's let's. So please think through. We've got two weeks to get ahead, so I can get organized and prepared. Um, that means that really, what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today was um, something we weren't supposed to talk about, which is sort of a really redo on on on, on sacraments, particularly because. Um, there have been some concerning events, and I think it's, it's helpful to think about whether some of the things that are happening for us right now are indeed sacramental or not. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Um, of course, I'm talking about world events, and um, there's a little bit of reference this morning in the very, very strange sermon that I'll apologize more for during the service. Um, but, you know, I had a really interesting teacher in seminary, and, and, and you'll hear this case made a little bit more um, in there, whether it makes sense or not. Uh, we talked a long time ago about how there's seven sacraments, right, that include uh, the Eucharist and baptism as the two majors, and then ordination and confirmation, anointing with oil, reconciliation, formerly called confession, and, oh, I have to think through, did I? And marriage, thank you. We spent a lot of time on these seven, and in early on I suggested, you know, in some ways, these are the seven, and seven's a good biblical number, but the truth is, many of us have sacraments that are not rep represented in the seven, if you really think about it, right? For, for many of us, this is sort of like that idea that comes out of Celtic spirituality, that there are thin places in the world, places where you go where the veil between heaven and earth is just a little bit thinner. Right? Um, for many of us, it has to do with sort of mountaintop experiences, but it could also be 
you know, beaches or even museums. These can be thin places for people. What's interesting is that even though there are these places, they may not be common to us all. And in some ways, maybe that's the wisdom of, of the seven number, right, is that we all have different thin places. So even though places might be sacramental, where they are may differ. Does it make sense? I mean, this is part of the reason um, with the Bible, when we think about the Bible, that the canon is set. We don't add any books to it. Because the truth is, many of you would find to kill a mockingbird to, to reveal great truth to you. Uh, some of you might find that in um, a totally different book. You know, I mean, we've really, it's interesting when you're in high school and you had to read something like The Grapes of Wrath, and your teacher loved it, and you thought, why did I read this? Really, I'm 17. Um, I'll try it again when I'm 25. And, 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 and I did, and I liked it a lot better. Um, but, but, you know, this is what I mean about, about sort of that business, is that we have books not in the Bible that speak strong to us. And, and if we're really honest, sometimes there's books or films that speak to us more strongly than the Bible itself does. I'm just thinking to be honest about that. Um, however, we've, we've sort of drawn this, this fence around Scripture because we said there's enough here for us to go forward, and we're going to stay here. People have found it, and we're going to stay here. Of course, you're going to add your own bits, but we collectively are going to say this is it. I mean, that's part of my reasoning as we approach it, and I think sacraments are the same thing. A couple of weeks ago, actually it's probably been seven or eight now, I suggested to you we might consider service to other people as sacramental. Um, it's not one of the big seven, but I think if you've ever really engaged in it, um, and you have, everybody has by virtue of just being alive, um, there really is something about outward and spiritual signs of inward, in, uh, in, sorry, outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual graces when we serve other people, even when we have the worst of intentions. You know, that's the interesting thing. You, you could totally be doing the service for yourself, um, but the fact is you're serving other people, right? And that's, that's pretty spiritual and inward, that grace, I, I sort of think. Well, I had another teacher in school who argued really, really strongly that learning or education is also a sacrament. Now, you know, you know what happens when we go down this road. It can get out of control, and you can end up with 147 of these instead of seven. And in some ways, that may be why we park at seven. But, but I do ask you to consider... Um, to consider education and an, and an alternate sacrament too. So I'm backing into this really long-windedly like I always do. And um, in order to do that, it'd be really helpful for me to tell you that the Episcopal Church is in full communion with another, with three other denominations that I know of. Okay, this is confusing. You hear full communion, you think, doesn't that mean you take communion when you go to their church? <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, you know, because we're in full communion um, with the ELCA, that's the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. We're in full communion with the Roman Catholic Church, but you're not welcome to take communion there, just so you know, even though we're in full communion, depending on the priest. Um, we're in full communion with the Moravian Church, which I'm going to tell you something about that in a second. You've maybe never heard of that one. Um, and of course, we're in, we're in the Anglican communion, which would mean that priests in England are, really what it means is about clergy more than anything. It means that the clergy amongst the Church of England and the Episcopal Church and the ELCA and the Roman Catholic Church actually can be received and still be functioning clerics. So, so this is the deal, right? If I had a process where I decided that I wanted to be a Roman priest, I can go do that without having to go back to seminary. 
you know, I would just go to the bit, the art. No, I'm not interested at all. Why, why would I leave a good, never mind, okay. So, so, so in fact, if you've seen a Roman priest with children it's, and, a, and a wife, it's likely that they were Episcopal first because you can keep your wife and your children if you move. And that's a compromise that the Roman church has made to have full communion. Um, the Lutheran church had to compromise because in the Lutheran church, you're not ordained three times. You're not ordained a deacon and then ordained a priest and then ordained a bishop. We're the only ones who do that. The Lutherans had to put up with that so that we could do this. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Like we always have to compromise to have communion. Yes, sir. Would you need to go through another ordination? No, that's the trick. You don't do another ordination because... It's, it, when you say full communion, really what it means, it's sort of like your baptism is acknowledged. And, and truly, right, I mean, what, with how we do this, it's kind of up to the discretion of a priest. But if you've been baptized in a different Christian denomination, we categorically usually don't rebaptize you in the Episcopal Church because rebaptize is not something that we do. You do it one time. Right? You might choose to remember your baptism in a ceremony. Um, there's, there's peripheral groups that do this. Am I being too weird on this? You following what I'm saying? Like, and and like the big thing growing up for me, I grew up Southern Baptist. Well, if you were baptized Methodist, we wouldn't baptize you again. I, I think in the Southern Baptist Church, if you were baptized Catholic, we probably would. Because, well, I think because, um, because we insisted that you do it as an adult. I was 10. Um, but... Um, you had to do it as an adult. I think if you were an infant, we'd say you need an adult baptism. But if you had been baptized Roman Catholic at 12 or something like that, we, we would, I don't think we would have redone it. Does, does, does it make sense what I'm saying? Yes, ma'am. I always thought it's because, and I think it's on the Baptist Church, that when they do immersion, they're doing the Yeah, you know, and, it, it, and that's the truth. And this is a really interesting thing just to, just to park on. I swear we're not spending much time here. I'm, like I said, I'm being really long-winded to get us where, I, where I'm hoping we're going to end up. Um, every Baptist church really is different. That's changed a little bit. But the truth is I was ordained by a Baptist church. The deacons ordained me. Um, and I have a little certificate in my office. As far as I know, they, I mean, I haven't taken away because I still have the certificate. Um, <laughs> they probably would if they found out I was Episcopal priest. But, but that one church would be the one that took it away, not the convention, right? Because each individual church is locally autonomous. Now, that sounds different or interesting, but, the, but I'll tell you, having been in Episcopalian now for several years, we sort of work that way. Of course, there's the diocese and there's rules, but um, each church has its own ethos or way of doing it, right? I've, I've, I went to an Episcopal church in California that had a, it's the strangest thing I've ever been to. It, um, it was a right one, 8 a.m. service with a drum kit and a screen. And, and I thought, and the, the preacher was, a, I mean, he was a Southern Baptist, um, but we had the right one liturgy. I mean, that was the only thing that made it somewhat Episcopal. And it was very jarring for me. Um, and of course, lots of people appreciate that. It's just, I thought it was really strange, right? And every church does this differently. Some people have bands and smoke and lights. You know, some people do right one. That's all they do. They don't ever do right two. St. Martin's is that church, right? Every, every service is right one. And that's the biggest Episcopal church in the United States. So we're all really different that way. Okay, coming back to what I wanted to say, though, is that in the Moravian church, and this is mostly a 
somewhat uh, Western European tradition that came out of the Reformation, um, they have a sacrament we don't have, which is foot washing. They decided that that's sacramental because our Lord himself did it, right? And so he adorned that way of life with his participation on Monday, Thursday, and, and they decided that that's sacramental. And um, I can't tell you, I don't think they do it every week. I think they probably do it annually, but they don't do it as like a neat experience to participate with Jesus. They do it as a sacrament, and we're in full communion with them. Does this make sense? So, so even some of our full communion partners look at the number and the nature of the sacraments differently from how we do. The one thing that's in common, really, because I told you about the, about the, 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 the ability from clergy to move one another with the bishop's um, permission, is that we all have bishops, and we all believe in the apostolic succession. That means that a bishop, you know, a bishop has hands laid on her or him, and another bishop's hands are laid on the one who did that, all the way back, they say, to, to Jesus, right? That's sort of the idea. So we all kind of believe in that. It's the, not kind of, we all believe in that, and that's, that's like the criterion for, for doing it. You know, the church is working really hard to get in communion with the Methodist Church, who also has bishops, right? The, the Methodist Church actually is more Anglican than we are as Episcopalians, interestingly enough. Our liturgy tends, tends to be a little higher than your average Methodist, although high Methodist churches are right up there with us, you know, and um, I, I don't want to, sorry, I'm doing all that stuff. Um, w what I wanted you to consider, though, really was about learning and education as, as, as sacramental, particularly even as we engage with the other seven and as we engage with service. And, and there's a number of, of events that are sort of going on that I think are worth getting our heads around how we participate in. And, and at the risk of repeating everything that we did in the sermon, I, I, I don't want to do that. I, I think instead I want us to think a little more firmly about this, that part of our, our interest in sacraments is that these are things that Jesus engaged in, right? So, so Eucharist he instituted. Baptism, well, he was baptized. According to the Gospel of John, he did baptize other people, maybe, uh, and then the disciples ended up doing it, but physically involved in that. Of course, we don't know about marriage directly from the Gospels, except that Jesus celebrated a wedding at Cana, and he was there for the celebration. And the prayer book calls that to mind, right, that, that, that Jesus adorned this manner of life. Um, I want to suggest to you that um, confirmation... <laughs> Probably not. Jesus was not confirmed by a bishop. Uh, <laughs> however, I, I think it's this process in which, you know, disciples end up being sent down and becoming rabbis. I think that's really what confirmation's about, is that, that, that we end up becoming these people who go and share our faith and, and help mentor others, not that that we climb up this hierarchical ladder, but frankly, when we have enough resources built up in ourselves to share with other people, that's what we do. And, and I think that's really what confirmation's all about. So, so you can make your own argument about that. Um, anointing with oil has to do with care of the sick and the downtrodden and the guilty and the shamed. And there's no question that's what Jesus did to me, right? So, so, so there's that one. Um, Reconciliation is a real interesting thing, and, and then ordination is the same thing with rabbi. But reconciliation is really about, I mean, didn't Christ come to reconcile the world to God? 
I mean, so his entire way of living was sacramental, not just that he had a confession. So he's just think through that. But I, but I want you to think through also service. Jesus certainly did that. And, and lastly, I want you to think through about education. This is an interesting thing to think about. Um, we often get really, um, in some ways, prone to superhero thinking. At least, maybe I should just speak for myself. The way I grew up is that Jesus being God was like a superhero. So he was sort of perfect his whole life and never did anything bad. And, and while that's true at one level, sometimes we can overstate what that means. So, so I just... You can read these stories, and they're written from the three, four, five hundreds. They're called um, the um, either the the Pseudepigrapha or the Apocrypha, and they're books, they're gospels about what Jesus was like as a little boy. And people decided he was unlike most other little boys in that he didn't make mistakes, but. He was like every other boy in that he was just kind of a bratty jerk. <laughs> I don't think they're trying to say that. I'll just give you some of these stories. One day, Jesus was making clay birds on the Sabbath. So he was playing with clay and making birds. And one of his friends came up and said, you know, Jesus has broken the Sabbath. He's working. You can't do that on a Sabbath. You can't make clay birds. And Jesus said, what clay birds? And they all turned into birds and flew away. And... I guess that's cute. Um, it's kind of bratty and obnoxious, though, isn't it? Uh, there's another time where Jesus is trying to learn his letters, and um, so they hire a tutor, which is what you did. They didn't have public school. You had tutors. The tutor comes and says, okay, I'm ready to teach you. And Jesus says, you can teach me when you can explain the meaning of the alpha and the omega. And then the, the teacher is struck mute. Is that the right word? The teacher can't speak anymore. This happens to a succession of teachers, and the parents finally quit because he was literate since he was born, right? I mean, that just sounds kind of, well, mean to me. Um, the other one is that he's playing hide-and-seek with his friends, and um, I guess they, they ask, they hear, the, the, the looker hears some noise in a house and says, uh, Jesus, are those the kids hiding? And he says, um, Oh, no, Jesus is the looker. Jesus is the looker, and he's looking for the kids. And, and he hears, and I think the mom is, like, trying to help the kids. And the mom's like, no, no, those aren't the kids you hear. Those are goats. And, and little boy Jesus says, just as you've said, so shall it be. And he turns them all into goats. <laughs> I think this sounds a little bit more like the Brothers Grimm tale than it does, uh, you know, somebody I'd like to emulate in my way of living. Um, I have to admit, if I were a little boy and I had magic powers, that's probably how I would use them too. Um, so these are the stories that we get. But, but if we take it really seriously, that Jesus was like us in every way, but without sin, which is the claim of the prayer book, right? And the, really part of the claim of our faith. Every way like us, but without sin. It's kind of worth, I think, pushing on that a little bit and thinking, thinking through what that means. Because, <clears throat> I mean, if Jesus was born literate, he's not like us. I mean, you didn't, you weren't born knowing how to make letters or even honestly how to hold a pencil in the way the teacher wants you to. Right? As a small child, in general, it's much more expedient to hold it in your fist than it is in your fingers. So, so I guess there's this question, did, was Jesus born walking or did he have to crawl first? Um, did, did, did Jesus sleep in his own bed all night long from the time he was born and he try to get in bed with mom and dad? Now, I know what you're saying. Well, Mike, that isn't a sin. But it's real annoying, isn't it? <laughs> it's cute and it's annoying. And did his parents have to teach him to stay in his own bed? 
Did any of you learn on your own to stay in your own bed at night, or did your parents have to teach you? I mean, I think your parents probably had to teach you one way or another. And there's obviously, there's some nicer ways of teaching than others. And, and then there's effective. Forget about nice, there's also effective ways. So did Jesus have to learn? And what kind of teachers were Mary and Joseph? Did Jesus have to learn how to read and write? Again, I think so. I think so. Did he have to learn how to dress himself and how to, um, how to wash appropriately, you know? And when he was a teenager, how to dye his hair and get a little curl and, uh, and <laughs> do other weird things that adults think are strange. I mean, were there fashion trends that he engaged in as a teenager that made no sense to his parents? These questions, I think, are really, really important because we don't usually think about them. But if, if we do and we say, yeah, Jesus probably was like that, then, then it gives us really a much more palpable humanity to engage with and it really sends the message that when God became incarnate, God really did become like us. And that, that learning is a fantastic thing. It's a gift from God, right? Because that's what we pride ourselves on, is, is learning and, and growing in our behaviors to be more loving and considerate of ourselves and one another. If you didn't have to learn, though, there's no process for you. And, and, and surely part of what we're most interested in is this process of growth in faith. Is this, is this okay what I'm saying? It's not too, too strange? You know, in the sermon today, I'm going to ask you to think really hard about um, mislearning, because mislearning happens. You know, and, 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 and we see it a lot. You know, part of the thing that happened in the Brown versus the Board of Education that, that many of you know, right? The Supreme Court made that decision because they decided that segregation, they didn't decide it was morally wrong. They decided it interfered with interstate commerce. Right? And that's the court's job, is that it was basically affecting money-making possibility. And, and part of the testimony was that they had... Now, this is where you get into morality. This is an interesting thing, because the court really doesn't make moral judgments. They make commercial judgments. Um, but there they were, and, and part of the testimony was that the, 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 the black children who were products of segregated schools identified more with white dolls than they did with black dolls because they knew, they knew that that was a symbol of power and prestige that they wanted. And this, this, this was part of the testimony, right? Um, so, so this is something that sort of had to go on. And I guess the question is, did Jesus also have moments where he learned cultural prejudice or not? And so many of us think it's really cute when our kids come home, and I thought this was darling, you know, my when I ask my, my, my daughter about who's who in the class, and, and let's just pretend there's, there's four white kids and a black kid, okay? And, and, and the black kid's named Danny, and I would say, which one's Danny? And my daughter would say, well, he's the boy, <laughs> okay? Um, he's the one with the red shirt. I mean, like, these are the ways. It, it so naturally occurred to me, he's the one black kid in the class. Like, that's but the truth is kids don't think like that until they're taught to think like that. And, and in some ways, I'm not even saying that's wrong. That's, that's a very differential characteristic, right? But I want you to think through, did Jesus have to learn and unlearn that behavior? So that has to do with today's reading about feeding the dog. Yeah, I think so. See, Terry's already thinking ahead. She already did the reading. Good Episcopalian. <laughs> Yeah, she gets extra clemency for her sins this week. Um, 
Well, I, 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 I raise it to say, right, that, that, that this is a really key thing to think about. And, and I'll say this in the sermon again, but I, I really think it's worth meditating on this. Um, good Anglican priest John Wesley said that, that sin and ignorance are different things. That, that ignorance can become sin, but it's not inherently sin. Right? And, and we, sort of, we sort of know this when our children are small and they do something that we know is really bad, but they don't know any better and we have that phrase. Like that was bad, but they didn't know what they were doing. And, and we don't usually use that phrase on adults because we think that adults should know what they're doing even if they really don't know what they're doing. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Now listen, I'm telling you, I struggle with this big time. And, and one of the first things they do, just for example, if you want to be a foster care parent, is they spend a lot of time telling you how it is that real families have lost the rights to their children. Because if you're like me, and you're probably better people than I am, but when I went in there, I thought only foolish or inherently wicked or cruel people would do something to jeopardize the safety of their children, right? This is similarly, you can just think objectively, there's all these rules about never shake a baby, and you see these posters, right? And you sort of know, like, you don't do that. If you've had a baby, you know why people do that. You just know not to do that, you, you know, but you sure know why they do it. Particularly imagine if they didn't have the resources that, that we have. I mean, I was lucky that I had people I could call, including my spouse, and I could say, you need to come home now. <laughs> you need to come home now. So imagine if you didn't have anybody in the world like that, if you had no respite. Well, I mean, we, we kind of we start to understand that one, right? And, and, and with kids, they tell you these stories about people losing their job and people making a wrong traffic turn because they're upset. And that one time the police are there and they get a ticket and they don't have the money and, and these things accrue, right? And maybe someone goes to a bar and, of course, we all know that's not good coping, but the one time they're barely over the breathalyzer, but they get a DWI and there goes their license. You, 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 you get what I'm saying, right? These are the things that they walk us through in foster care so that we'd have some more compassion because quite honestly we look at people who we deem ignorant and we're ignorant about them we're, we're ignorant about what resources they had or how compelled they felt and, um, and this I think is where thinking about education as sacramental becomes really really interesting there's a few episodes in the gospels that just really bother me um, and I know Jesus is to be emulated but you know with the pigs, right, where there's a bunch of pigs. There's a man that's possessed by a demon called Legion because there's many of them. A Legion had like 2,000 soldiers in it, not 1,000, but two. And the, the demons ask if they can go into the pigs, and Jesus says, sure. And they go in the pigs, and the pigs go get drowned in the water. They, they run into the water. It bothers me, not because I'm a member of PETA, um, although I, I, like most of you, um, <laughs> don't see why that would be okay for, frankly, innocent animals to just be drowned. I mean, that one's always bothered me. The other one is that Jesus goes to a fig tree, that, and it's not fig season, and what do you know? There's no figs on it. <laughs> and he gets really mad because it doesn't have figs, and he curses it, and it withers. Now, I know it's just a tree, but it's, it's like a living thing. It seems kind of capricious to me. I don't know about you. These sorts of things, well, they bug me. I know what they mean symbolically, 
I know it's like demons are unclean things and they drown themselves. I get that. The problem is the story is not told in a symbolic way. It's told in a realistic way. The same with the tree. I get the meaning of it. It doesn't have figs in season. It's never had any figs, so away with it. And that's probably a commentary on the Jewish temple. Okay, that's fine. But it's still a real tree that gets withered in the story. And then there's one we get today, you know, and I don't want to overdo this because we're going to do this in there, where a woman comes up to Jesus and says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus says, I don't give children's bread to dogs. And, and these are gendered words in Greek, right? I don't give children's bread to female dogs. We have a word for that in English, don't we? Um, this is very disturbing to me. I'm just going to let you know. Um, the way I was taught, of course, is the way you get Jesus out of any trouble is he's testing people's faith. So he's seeing how she'll respond when she's ignored or, or when, she's, when she's called an epithet. But I'm not really comfortable with Jesus using epithets because the way I grew up, those, we don't use those. Like, those are wrong. Now, listen, I use them, but, but I know I'm not supposed to. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying. Um, that one in particular, uh, I really try hard not to use because it's such a gendered word. There's really no equivalent to that word for a, for a man. You, you, you know? I mean, this is something my wife has worked really hard. Um, I, I, honestly, I can't think of one. There's a lot of words like that, too. Think about um, a woman who has loose morals or ill repute. You could probably think of 15 different words for that person. And there's not a single equivalent word for a man who acts like that. I know you're thinking there's a gigolo, but that's silly. You, you, you know what I mean? That sounds so much like Jello or Richard Gere that, <laughs> that you, you know, in some ways that's cool to be that, but the other words are not. They're all pejorative. Do, do you know what I mean? So, so I, and, 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 I think, and I, I think it's worth thinking through. This story happens when Jesus is 30, and I, and I do think it's really worth yeah. us considering what's going on in Jesus's head or the way he's been formed and that 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 even God incarnate was subject to cultural miseducation is that okay to say that cultural miseducation well we teach our children it's okay to say those words it's interesting because I have a dad who um, will sometimes use the n-word although I'll tell you for his own generation I don't think he really believes in that word. It's really jarring to hear it because, you know, in my generation particularly, we, don't we just don't use that word. We know not to use that word. It represents something iconic and monolithic. And, and from my dad, who used that word all the time with people, of the op you know, with people who, who were black or African-American or, or however you, 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 you identify otherwise, you know... Um, that's just sort of the natural word that he gravitates toward, even though he sort of knows what it also can represent. I, I wonder about those things. You know, I wonder, wonder um, if Jesus, like us, is enculturated into those words, and, and there's something to be said about a sacrament where we can no longer use them. Of course, the reason I'm, I'm thinking this out loud as sacramental is because of what's been happening in the last couple of weeks here, right? I just want to touch base with you about Jesus and education for a second and learning and see how that strikes you. I didn't mean it to be blasphemous at all. I, I mean it to actually be a very fully 
um, considerate of what it's like to be incarnate and to be a human being is that we're raised in cultures that teach us many great things and some things that are helpful for them at the expense of other people. My grandfather was a World War II veteran, and um, when he was really sick with cancer, um, my mom had bought him this thing called barley green. Which, did anybody ever, did you know barley green? It was like all this green mixture that you drank. It was essentially like a multivitamin nutritional supplement. It's supposed to be real healthy. It's developed by Japanese people, and she had to go on the, bar, on the bottle and the box with a Sharpie black marker and cross off every Japanese name, or he would never have touched it. Right, because because he'd, he'd learned a strong prejudice based on a very real experience. We we often forget, right, that that um, like in his case, it was based on a really strong and vivid experience. Universalizing that experience, we'd say, was the problem, right? That was the problem. And the conditions of that experience were different from normal conditions. Um, we often forget, I think, it's, again, it's much easier to do with little people that, that, um, that we're prone to those kinds of mistakes as well. And we often look at people who are doing things we don't like and we just judge, we, we don't know what their process is. And we make statements, honestly, that can sound as hateful and ugly as the ones we think that they're making. <laughs> Uh, and this is where I think it gets really messy. This is when we start thinking about how is it that we physically interact with people who are different from us, and how do we do it in godly ways, and how do we do it sacramentally? Really, I guess that's where I was trying to go uh, with, our, with a little bit of our time. It's really contentious, I think, this, this sort of idea, because uh, it's strong and it's in front of us, and leaders are doing either what we want or what we don't want right now. And, and in the middle of that, we've, we've also got things like statue relocations going on. And statues, of course, are exactly sacramental because they're physical representations of deeper realities. Or they aren't, depending who you talk to, right? So maybe I'm at the point where I want to just sort of check in with you. <laughs> The chief priests and the rabbis and the teachers of the law, yeah. Well, I think I think in some ways my question back is how do you think it fits in <laughs> with what we've just had? Mm -hmm. So, 
so in case you didn't hear, Paulie is referencing this, this one story we have from Jesus' youth. It's the only story where he goes to the temple at the age of 12, probably for a major festival, and the parents leave and Jesus doesn't go with them. He stays there. And, um, and, and Paulie's th thinking, see if I got this right, is that, is that one way to read bi the Bible is that God is sort of growing into how to live in relationship with people. Because one way you can read the Hebrew Bible is that there's lots of honest violence and, and, um, and that, maybe, that maybe God is figuring out how to live with people in better ways. That's called process theology. That's the formal name for it. Another way to, to think of it is that people are, God's people are growing how to think about God. It's in right or wrong, but, but God's people are growing so that, honestly, um, we're figuring out that the things we thought God was in favor of, God isn't. <laughs> you know, there's that, there's that favorite, famous Lincoln quote, um, let's not think that God is on our side, the best we can hope is to be on God's. It sort of represents that, that reversal of who's on whose side. Does God take our side or do we take God's? And, 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 and that's an interesting way to think about when you read stories in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that seem very, very violent, is that actually God being violent or is that us thinking God is like us? <laughs> it, there's multiple ways to read it, you know, but, but in some ways, cer certainly our hope is that either way we're growing up together. And that's what I hear you saying and, and, and learning how to relate to one another. That's right. So Paulie says we're, we're exposed to a lot of education and sometimes we don't accept. And I think this is true, right? This is why we try to teach lots of different things to our children so they can grow into them later. Well, I think part of it even has to do, if you think through some of the relationships you've had, and I'm going to use the P word, which I know is like a dirty word to use in church, but, but think through your own interactions with prejudice. Okay, and, I, and I'll tell you a couple um, that have been done to me that have been interesting reversals, and, and maybe I'll come up with some other good ones, because I'm, by the way, I'm never the hero, I'm, I'm not always the hero in my own story. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've got plenty of examples of how I've been just really terrible. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of these, and, and I ask you to consider with me if these are the kind of moments that are like sacramental moments, and if you have some of your own, we'd be grateful to hear them. My last church was a Navy church, so it's in Coronado, California, home to the amphib base where the Navy SEALs train. There were seven admirals in the parish of our size. Um, two of them had four stars, two of them had three stars. See, this is a major place, right? This is sort of like being in the Pentagon Auxiliary. <laughs> and I remember that we had this lady come. She was the director of the camp at San Diego. It's called Camp Stevens, so it's the diocesan camp. And um, she uh, gave this sermon. She was brand new, this big diocesan institution. I didn't think she wore an alb. I think she wore like a, I think she wore like a nice polo or t-shirt and like a, a vest, like one of these, those puffy sleeping bag vests, you know. And, and she'd had a, um, a stillbirth of a daughter, and she'd, she'd tattooed her daughter's name on her wrist. And she gave what I thought was a really, really good sermon. And after, 
Afterward, we walk into the parking lot, and, um, and there was a rear admiral who'd spent 10 years being tortured in the Hanoi Hilton with John McCain. And he was there with his wife. And, and they were just lovely people, you know. Just imagine surviving that and going on to be productive. I mean, that's pretty incredible testimony to life, right? And, and I said, hey, what'd you think? <laughs> what'd you think of the sermon this morning? You know, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Beth great? And he said, to be honest with you, I spent most of the time looking at the ink on her arm. And I just was sort of surprised. And then he said, I've still got some growing up left to do, don't I? He was an amazing man. He was an amazing man. Um, wonder if that isn't the sacrament of learning that he embodied within himself to say, I was fixated on something I shouldn't have been. Um, I, I, um, this, is, this is a story that's not even about anything, you know, except I think this is how these things turn for us. I decided when I was 21, I was going to get my ears pierced. I can't really say why, but that's what I was going to do. So I've had these things for a long time now. And I took them out when I was teaching at a private school because I thought they wouldn't want me to have them. So I didn't have them for a while. And I started being the associate rector at my last church without them. This is good because it was a Navy town. <laughs> so, so I looked just like a normal person in the Navy. You know, that was great at the time, mind you. And... Um, Two years in, I, I did this weird thing. I was having chronic pain, and I couldn't get it to go away. So I was going through the catalog of, like, weird things you do. And, uh, and normal acupuncture probably would have been less weird. I ended up getting ear acupuncture, which was where they'd take these little beads with needles, and they'd stick them all in my... I mean, I had, like, 15 of them in my ear. And uh, so, so I had these sort of gold ears from, from doing this. By the way, it just hurt my ears. It did not help my arms at all, um, as with many of the other things in the catalog, you know. Um, so I just sort of, like, three weeks into that was like, you know, I'm just going to put my earrings back in because I've been having gold ears for three weeks, and that's fine. And I remember the shock of one of those four-star admirals the day he saw that. And uh, what did he say? He said... I just am so disappointed. That's what he said. That's what he said. And uh, I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed because I put my little hoop earrings back in. And um, I saw him the next week, and I said, you know, I just want to check in with you. And he said, we're good. <laughs> we're good. And uh, I wasn't why I did it. I just wasn't why I did it. I did it because that's really what I wanted to do, and I didn't feel like it had to exclude what, what I did. Um, if I hadn't spent two years with him, there's no way he'd have reconsidered it for me. And he didn't reconsider the category for education. He re reconsidered it for me. I got lots of stories like that, where I've reconsidered a category for one specific person, you know? I, uh, I met these people when I lived in a youth hostel that were Muslim. They were the first real Muslim people I'd met because I'd gone to Christian college and my high school didn't, we didn't have any Muslims, not that I knew of. If, if we did, they were, they were secret. And um, I met these people. They were from 
Lebanon and from two other countries. They always walked around together. They wore the headscarves and they just exuded warmth. I mean, they were really these people that you just want to be around because they almost have like an aura. And I, I sort of hated it because I knew from my faith training that they were wrong and they were going to hell when they died. I mean, that's sort of, I knew that. <laughs> but they were better people than I was. You know, I mean, I didn't have that aura of peace. and I, didn't ha I still don't. I don't have that thing that they had. And um, I'm glad I met them first. Because uh, now, you know, I look at people in the news and I say, well, that's, that's not at all what Kassir was like. Because I met him first, you know? And, and wow, he redefined the category for me. And, and, and I struggled a long time with, you know, golly, if I think I've really got a better faith, why do they have a better life? Same thing with women in ministry. You've heard me tell that story before. Um, same thing the first time I met a first person who is my friend who then told me he was gay. And, and I had to track through was he any different as my friend because he was gay? I'd grown up that you don't talk to those, pe to those people. That's how I'd grown up, right? And, and my, my, my parents taught me that for lots of reasons. Uh, so did my faith community. But, but I sort of, when I met my friend, I, I mean, he was my friend. What do you what do? You, do? You, you stop being friends with somebody who's a good friend to you because... You get what I'm saying? I wonder if that isn't sort of the bit about sacramental learning, where, where honestly we meet someone who's a label to us and somehow they become a person. I wonder if there isn't something sacramental about that transformation, you know? Because I, I, one way to read the story today that bothers me greatly is that that's what happens in the story. Jesus meets a label, and at the end, he's interacting with a person. And, and there's, there's lots of labels. And, and honestly, the way I grew up is the labels we're most afraid of, the way I grew up, are labels like liberal, <laughs> um, Democrat, <laughs> liberal Democrat. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding a little bit. We were afraid of all those labels. Um, Catholic, we're afraid of that. Mormon, really afraid of those labels. Um, pagan, really worried about that. Um, transgender is just, that's way past our even book. We don't even use that word. That's a scary word. <laughs> way worse, way worse than gay, which is a really scary word. Go figure that. You got it. You know, I mean, it goes both ways. That's where I'm going. No, that's where I'm headed. That's where I'm headed, okay. right? And, and I think for, for, honestly, my experience with the, the Episcopal Church that I've been in, and I've been in different parishes, you know, but sometimes we worry about words like tea party, you know? That, that's a word that we use to denigrate somebody. And, and I do think this, this is, listen, um, I'm not naive about what's going on in our world. I'm not. Um, Sometimes uh, maybe less informed than I could be, but not naive. Uh, I definitely think there's words we use on both sides that are just really ugly, that are about destroying somebody's dignity. And I think what we like to do, because it's very human, is use a label so that we don't have to interact with somebody's humanity that's different from our own. 
even if that label is word like Nazi. You know, in Germany, it's illegal to call someone a Nazi. It's against the law. You're also not allowed to have a swastika in Germany. As an American, I think that's really weird. <laughs> we use those words all the time, right? There's the soup Nazi on Seinfeld, and that's really funny. Um, this is tough. I mean, this is tough stuff that we deal with, though. This is tough stuff. So I'm always hearing the liberals will listen to you, but the, the conservatives. No. And, and yeah. Yeah, you know, I think there's this interesting thing that we, that we go through, right? Um, you know, there's people, there's people in my life that I've decided I try not to talk to very much because when we talk with each other, we don't have conversations. We have independent monologues, right? So they tell me, blah, 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 blah. They don't actually care what I have to say, but for some reason, I've got to say it. <laughs> I've got to have my own monologue. I wonder if the sacrament of learning happens when monologues turn to dialogue. I don't ever know what it takes to make it happen. Listen. If you knit well, but you both have to do it. That's the trick. It's sort of like reconciliation. It only takes one person to forgive, but to have a future together, it takes both of you. Right? And maybe that's the deal, is that to, to make this work, one person has to try harder than the other, at least up front. Maybe that's the deal. That's true in my marriage. I don't know about yours. You know, but when we, we do something bad, one of us does have to try harder, at least up front. <laughs> right? Because if we both say, I'm not, gonna, I'm not doing something until you do something, we both rest there, then nothing's going to happen. Right? One of us has to do something. No, but I think I'm totally with you. And I think part of what I'm trying to say full circle is not just that we have fears about people who are different from us. Uh, no, in fact, we do. And the way we talk about those people and the way we talk to those people is probably where the sacrament really happens. And I think the same in the life of Jesus. It's just really interesting to consider, right, how notorious sinners are treated. I don't, this isn't an easy answer. I'm not saying that we should, again, be naive and foolish. I mean, hateful things are hateful things. And, and some, something that we've done poorly, I think, as a, as a people in the world, is that we say, that's a blank idea instead of that's a morally wrong idea. And what we haven't done is said, you know, listen, you've got great ideas all around, but the way you talk to other people is not acceptable. <laughs> I haven't seen that Facebook post. I've seen, how dare you? You chauvinist, you misogynist, you blah, 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 blah. I've seen a bunch of other labels get applied instead of us saying, if you're going to talk like that on TV, we're going to censor it. <laughs> I mean, that would take care of it, don't you think? I don't think it would. You don't think it would? You think it would give more energy to people who do that so they'd get more bleeps? That could be. I think it's a good question. Is it better for Emily to be under the table or out in the open? I think it's better for it to be out in the open because it can be seen and hopefully thought about and maybe addressed in a better way. Whereas if you don't talk about it, censor it, 
You know, I, I think that, you know, I, I appreciate you asking those questions because I don't know that it, there necessarily is an either or answer on this. You know, there's, there's some real difficulty things going on now with teenagers. There's a book that was written earlier this year. It's a fiction book called 13 Reasons Why. Has anybody heard of this book? So, so there's a lot of like struggle to figure out what to do about this book because it's a, it's a book about a girl and I hope I'm not ruining the ending. You find this out up front, who, who commits suicide. And basically she creates tapes, one tape per person, and there's 13 people that contributed to her committing suicide. This is how the book goes. And, and after she's dead, the tapes get circulated one at a time to the 13 different people so that they can know what they did to make her want to kill herself. Uh, it's, it's very... Um, well, the unfortunate thing about the book is that it's triggered copycats. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? This is actually something very prone to suicide, uh, particularly in a community or even in a family, is that w when one person does it, it's almost like it gives other people the idea or the permission to do it. Now listen, everybody knows about it happening, but there's something interesting about when it actually does happen in a community, you worry about copycats. Um, and there's other interesting things that talk about why you put rails around really tall buildings, because when people go up there and they, they see like a rail, oddly enough in general, they just go back down <laughs> and, and they don't go back up. Or when you put a holding period on handguns, if people have to wait, in general, like 90% of the time, they don't do that. I, that all sounds inconvenient and silly, but this is the, the, the research behind those laws. But, but I wonder about copycats with our language. I really wonder about it. I wonder about copycats with Facebook posts. And I know, you know, I know that social media, um, but honestly, most Facebook users are o over 45. <laughs> Most of us are too. I, I, I got dear friends even at this church who are great people and their Facebook posts make me really uncomfortable. They're nasty. I mean, they're nasty. I don't know where that came from because they've never been nasty like that to me. I've never seen them be nasty like that. It's uncomfortable for me. I, I, I wonder about this. I mean, I wonder about this stuff. You know, I agree with you in some ways. What about hidden tensions and what about dealing with them? But, you know, there was in the olden days the deal that, that you kept manners even with people you didn't like. And, and in some ways, having good manners made the dislike a little more manageable. <laughs> Yeah, I actually, think, I actually think that really all of the sacraments are about manners. Our manners with each other in public and with God. And, and, and I, I don't mean that we do one thing and, and are secretly thinking, those aren't good manners that you do one thing and, and talk about how much you hate doing it. I mean, I just grew up, you didn't do that. You just, you, you, you said please and thank you even when you didn't feel like it and you tried to mean it. Well, there'd be a lot to be said if we'd do that, <laughs> don't you think? My mother used to always say, if you can't say something nice or good, just don't say anything. 
Yeah, but my philosophy is, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. That, that's the one we heard, but, you know, um, more often than not, I don't live like that. Well, it, I mean, I, you know, I wonder about it. I, I wonder if when we can't say something nice, if that isn't an opportunity to reflect on why not. <laughs> I mean, that might be the different way to say it. <laughs> well, I, again, I just, I, I do worry about it. I mean, the, 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 the truth is, during the presidential campaign, when people came home quoting candidates, I told my daughter, you will not talk like that in this house. I'm talking about on both sides. Because I don't want my child talk. I mean, do you want your children talking like that? And I, I think that's sort of a big deal. And I see that happening even in the last couple of the weeks. And I don't want to be like, oh, the country's so bad, times are getting worse. I mean, I think there's something sacramental about the words we use and the posture we use, especially when we disagree with people, especially when we disagree. You know, and I think one of the biggest things for me as the Episcopal Church is that I sort of think one of our most important identities is that we know we're going to disagree with somebody else. And if we don't know that news, you're going to disagree with somebody else, often the priest here, and that does not preclude us from worshiping together. Instead, that makes our joint worship much more powerful, is that we come together saying we have more in common than we have apart. And that you know, somebody preferring right one over right two, if that language barrier becomes a barrier to community, we've missed the whole point of the right. Or, you know, whether the, the wine and the, and the bread turn into the real flesh and blood of Jesus, if that makes it so you can't take communion with somebody else, I think we've missed the point of the communion. They were in this thing together, especially when we disagree. That's, this is what I wonder about in the last bit. You know, I wonder if, if there isn't something sacramental about us saying, especially in disagreement, we're going to stay together. And part of the way we stay together is, is directly incumbent on how we treat each other and the words we use to describe each other, I think, right? There's certain words we use that once we've uttered them, how do you recover? Not just because you've been called that, but because you said that. Really, you've got to give me new material. You've got to tell me what you want to do in two weeks. You're going to get more of this kind of rambling and ranting stuff that I think is the essence of our faith. <laughs> okay, well, please email me or let me know what you'd like to do next, what you'd like to do so you don't get my whimsying. And I'm grateful for your sticking it out today. I promise we won't have a repeat like this one. <laughs>